If we have not met, my name is Chris McNaught. I am the youth and kids pastor here at Lion Valley Vineyard. I am often criticized for my terribly tight skinny jeans and the rips in them. I'm sorry, grandmother. I just realized I'm wearing them and you're here, so I apologize. Um, but it's great that you're here and with us. Um, I need to be really honest, actually. I'm actually, I feel a little bit nervous. Usually I don't get that nervous. I actually feel rather nervous tonight, but I'm really up for it. Um, are you guys up for it? Yes. Great. Let's jump straight in. This, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke 15? If you don't have them, don't worry. It's going to appear on this massive Bible above my head. There it is. And let's turn to Luke 15. And we're going to start in verse 1 of Luke 15. And before I read this, here's, here's kind of the scene painted around this. We have Jesus, who is currently on mission. He's going from town to town, place to place, telling people the good news and that um, God is good and he loves us. He's healing people. He's restoring lives. He's seeing the dead raised to life. He's doing all these amazing things. And then there's these other guys called the Pharisees. Pharisees are leaders and teachers and preachers. They're modern day pastors of that time. And they are experts in this thing called the book. They know it inside out. They memorize it. They can quote it to you. They can tell you where it is, when it happened, how it happened, everything inside it. They know it inside and out. And suddenly we have this standoff between the Pharisees and Jesus. You see, the Pharisees have an issue because Jesus is attracting all these guys who kind of have a bad reputation, kind of a bad rap, and aren't the kind of people who, if this guy is claiming to be the Son of God, should be hanging around with. And so we pick up here in Luke 15. That was a bit of a crash course of a context, but we'll come back full ship. Um, so Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose you have a hundred sheep and you lose one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in an open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, big emphasis on the word when, he joyfully puts it over his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses just one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and say, Rejoice to me, I found my coin. In the same way I tell you that there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we're not going to go any further. We're going to stop it there. Before I jump in, let me pray really quick. Jesus, thank you so much um, for this place and this space. Thank you so much that, um, Lord, what we have sang is true and has stood the test of time, that you are passionate about humanity, you're passionate about loving us and encountering us and reaching us. God, as we open your scriptures, would you speak? Would you speak to our hearts and to our minds? God, would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a question, and I'm sure we can probably relate on some kind of scale, but I want you to think back the last time you lost something valuable. It might have been something really, really valuable or not so valuable, or even think of the time if you've ever had something stolen from you, how you felt when that thing was taken away. It's kind of like whenever you think your phone's on you, but it's not, and you do that path thing, you know, and suddenly you think it's not there in your heart. 
well, that's maybe, maybe that's more of an indication of my phone and I's relationship. But um, we have that feeling that happens when that goes on. Um, so I love shoes, okay? And uh, some people, and I have a few pairs of them, okay? I have a few pairs of trainers. Some people would say I own too many shoes. I would tell them that they're wrong. And, uh, and if they said, Chris, you're in denial, I would tell them to shut up. But I have, I have quite a lot of shoes. And... Um, Last year, I was in L.A. around March time, and uh, there's a shoe that I really wanted to get. And so, to give you a bit of a meaning behind this, when I was growing up, um, there was two things that that I was kind of like obsessed with, and that was football boots and trainers. They were two things. Probably because when you were growing up, is that you were kind of determined by the shoes you wore or the football football boots you wore. That was kind of like what it was. So if you had like the in trainers, like you were the man. If you didn't, then you just weren't. But that was just kind of the way and the culture of what I grew up in. And so there was these trainers coming out. It was, they were the Nike Air Max. They were the original edition. I know you're thinking, what has this got to do with this? We'll get there. And, uh, and I, I really wanted them, okay? Now, to give you a bit of a preface, okay? So I, I think there's something in this that is of God. Um, March 26th is my birthday. Um, March 26th is also National Nike Air Max Day. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> I try to tell my mother that every time, and she does not buy it. And... Uh, and so, like, I feel like there's a bit of a connection there. But anyway, last year for my birthday, I was in L.A. with a few friends, and the trainers dropped, and I was like, I have to get them. Like, I have to. Like, I wore these. They came out in 06, and they came out in 09. Andy Masters stole my 09 edition. He still wears them from time to time. I don't own them. So I wanted to get a, the latest pair, okay? Like, these are vintage. These are classic. They told a story. They're deeply meaningful to me. I'm like, I have to get these, and I didn't get them. Absolute disaster. March 26th. On my birthday, still didn't get them. News came around uh, in October time that they were going to reissue, okay? So, like, they're limited stock. You can't just walk into a store and buy these. They're, like, limited stock. Like, you can't find them anywhere. Like, if you go into eBay and you try to get them, trainers are, like, stocks. It's like investing in the stock market. Like, you buy a pair of trainers and they're valuable. Like, they'll resale for, like, double, triple, quadruple the value. So, like, these shoes that I wanted, retailed at 99 On eBay, 500 Where's the justice? I don't know. <laughs> and so... So I got them, okay? In October, they re-released. I woke up 7 in the morning, and I woke up my whole house whenever it confirmed on the app that I bought them. I was like, yes! And, uh, and I got them. And so they're, they're like white and red. They're really nice. There's a nice suede. There's a nice material around it. You're like, Chris, I don't care. I'm like, well, I do. So we're going to talk about it. And, uh, and it rains in Northern Ireland quite a fair amount, okay? So it's not really weather for like white mesh shoes or suede, okay? It's just not really that kind of weather. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be disciplined because discipline is a fruit of the spirit and that's what Jesus tells me to be. So I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to put them away and I'm going to wear them in summer. So probably between now and up, up until this point, when I got them in October, and now I probably wore them like three times, okay? Not, not that much. And uh, last Thursday, we had an event. It was a coffee tasting event in Glasshouse uh, in Lisburn, and they invited our whole staff team to go. I was like, great, let's go. It was a really sunny day. I was wearing shorts. I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear my Nike Air Max. I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to pull them out of the box. Get ready, Lisburn. They're coming out. <laughs> and uh, so I decided I, decide I want to wear them. And so go to the coffee, coffee tasting event. I have no idea what's happening because I'm just looking at my shoes. I'm like, wow. <laughs> They're like, try this coffee. I'm like... Just leave me be for a while. <laughs> and uh, go to the coffee just event. It's all great. On Thursday nights, I also train and play football. So I was like, I'll go to the coffee event. I'll bring my stuff with me. And I'll go to football. And it'll be great. It must be known. For the unknown, unknown eye, these probably just look like any regular pair of Nike trainers. That must be said. There's nothing spectacular about them. It's more the meaning and the significance behind them. And so we go to the event. It's great. I go to football training. It's 
warm, I have a great session of training, I feel great, and I come back in. And when I got changed, I uh, put my wallet, and my keys, and my phone, and my socks into my shoe. And uh, like I leave my phone and my wallet and my shoes there every week. I've trained there since August last year. And I came back from training, I was like, this is a great day. Like, what a great day. Tomorrow's Friday, it's the weekend, like me and James are going to hang out, like it's going to be a great time. And I come back and my shoes aren't there. So my phone's there, my wallet's there, my car keys are there, my socks are there, but my shoes are there and they're just all on the floor. And I'm like, okay guys, like this is a joke, like someone in my team's like having a laugh and they're like playing around with me because I'm like the blonde haired kid, so like they poke fun at me a lot. It's only because they love me, but it's okay. And so um, I'm like, okay guys, it's not a funny joke, just give me my shoes back. And they're like, no, we, we don't have your shoes. I'm like, okay, I, okay, just tell me where my shoes are at. And they're like, no, we don't have it. And so I go, typically whenever like something gets stolen or something that's really valuable gets taken away, I go through like a four stage uh, kind of processing system of what happens. So first I hit like, like panic mode, I'm like, okay, I'm going straight to the guy at secretary. I was like, guys, some, someone stole my trainers. He's like, your trainers? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, what do you want me to do about it? I was like, call the police? I don't know. And uh, he's like, okay, we'll check CCTV cameras. We'll get back to you, okay? So I'm like, that guy's obviously not as concerned with my trainers as I am, so I don't know what I'm going to do. And then I hit like the next stage of like, uh, how do I best? Okay, so I have a bit of a reputation for exaggerating from time to time, okay? <laughs> Shut up. And uh, so I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like, I just hit like panic, but I'm like, I gotta find these trainers. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna drive up and down Crumlin till I find these trainers. I train in Crumlin, right? Now, truth be told, I've never drove up and down Crumlin. Hands up if you live in Crumlin. Hands up if you're gonna be in Crumlin this week. Well, if you do happen to see a pair of red and white, no, I'm a joke. Um, and I, like, I was like, I just gotta find them. I start looking everywhere. I start searching them down the road. I can't find them. And then I'm like, I'm like starting to hit like panic mode. I'm like, I think they're gone. I think they're gone forever. Like I'm not gonna get them. So I do what any normal individual does in this situation. I call my mum. I'm like, mum, <laughs> someone stole my shoes. She's like, your shoes? I was like, yeah. She's like, Chris, they're just shoes. And I was like, I thought we had a connection. <laughs> like, like, remember that time you gave birth to me and you know what matters and means a lot to me? And uh, she's like, Chris, they're just shoes. I'm like, they're not just shoes. And then I hit like a rational mode. I'm like, why couldn't they just took the car? Or, or my wallet? Or my clothes? Why'd they have to take the shoes? Last day, rational mode, okay? And then my mom's like, Chris, this is how she, she just knows. Well, actually, I think my dad said this from behind. She just knows how to push a button. She's like, Chris, what happens if some 16-year-old walks in wearing your Nike Air Max lying by the Ben Yard on Sunday and you're the kids and youth pastor? What are you going to do? <laughs> Stage four, Conor McGregor mode. I was like, Mom, you do not know what I'm going to do to that person if they walk in through that door. You know, suddenly I become like seven foot tall. I'm like... So all jokes aside, for the next six days, I checked from the band on Facebook probably about five times an hour, and I couldn't find them. I'm just about coming to terms with that they're gone. I did happen to go on eBay to see if I could find a replacement. The cheapest pair I could find in my size are 500 pounds. Some sympathy, that was nice. See, mum, sympathy. <laughs> Getting. Um, but I've just about come to terms with it. But all jokes aside, there's something interesting that happens when something means a lot to us, when something we value dearly and greatly is taken away from us. There's almost a natural response that happens in us. We, we immediately get triggered. Like, when that happened, I didn't have to question how I felt about my shoes. I knew deep down how I felt about them. It was a natural response of what I valued and what happened to that when that was violated, 
suddenly a behavior arose from that value. And for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to try to connect how Jesus loves you as much as Chris loves Air Max. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really not. So to pick it back up in the context of this scene, we have these guys, the Pharisees that I've just mentioned, and then we have Jesus on one side. And so the Pharisees, who, who, who are the Pharisees? So we play this game called 1%, sometimes, okay? Well, actually, so I get told I look like certain things quite a lot, okay? I play football for a football team in Glenavy. We play in a league that is not friendly. It's full of older men who just want to kick people. And I'm not that person, okay? So I don't really go down too well in that league. And, uh, and I've noticed across this year there's a correlation between the amount of times I get kicked and the color of my hair. And um, I've realized that at this point, either I need to shave my head or stop playing football. And I don't know which one's going to be harder, but I've got to do one of them. I'm only joking. It's definitely stop playing football. Kidding. I'm going to shave my head. Um, but I, uh, most recently, the, the one I get from the sideline is kick the blonde bimbo, right? That's what they... <laughs> And you're laughing, but I, I gotta tell you, when I play football, I don't take out well at all. Like, like my response is not great in that moment. I've had to do a lot of conversation with Jesus and how to handle that situation better. But people do say a lot, and I don't like when people say that. And maybe you've had certain situations where people tell you that you look like someone. They tell you like maybe it's doppelganger. We play this game called One Percent. Okay, James Toll. James Toll's One Percent of James Toll is Joseph Gordon-Levin for 500 Days of Summer. Mike, mic drop moment. Like, are you serious? Like. No? Okay. Sam McConaughey, right? Chris Martin from Coldplay, the lead singer, is Sam McConaughey with glasses. It's like, with Sam McConaughey with glasses on. That's like the same person. It's madness. Andy Masters with mustache. Borat from the... <laughs> right? See, we all know. They get it. They get it. That was the best response. So, um, I also happen to get a 1% from time to time, and I, 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 I... This is not open for engagement, but I get all immersed from time to time, and I'm like, I can't... Bl- no. And... Uh, I hate it. I absolutely hate it because Ollie Murr is like my mum and like my granny of Ollie Murr. He's not like a cool, cool person, you know. So, but I get that quite a bit. But the Pharisees are claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be God, look like God's more than 1%. Actually, they're claiming to be the doppelganger of God. They're trying to say that if you want to know what God's like, if you want to know what it's like to follow God, then look at us. Look at the way we do our life. That's an indication of who God is. And so this guy, Jesus, arrives up on the scene uh, and at the age of 30, he begins a ministry. Going from place to place, he's doing things that are miraculous. He's touching people and they're being healed. People are touching him and they're being healed. He's commanding things and immediately miracles are happening. Uh, and suddenly he's kicking up this whole kind of fuss. And these bad people are starting to gather around him. And the message translation, which, which you have it, it refers to Jesus' relationship with these people of doubtful reputation as he treats them like old friends not just new friends that you just met like the best kind of friends like old friends like you've been through some stuff together some good times and some bad times and you're stronger for it like those kind of friends like there's a depth and a meaning to their friendship and relationship and he's referring to these people who are bad people as his friends and so it refers to him eating with them what's the big deal around that well if we go back into Greco-Roman culture eating with someone was a way of saying these, these are my social boundaries this is who I affiliate myself with. In fact, if you were to look at their table, that would tell you that this is my people. This is who I hang out with. This is who I spend time with. This is who I engage with. These are my people. And so the Pharisees have a big issue with this because their understanding of, of the scriptures is that there's good people and there's bad people. 
and that God's only interested in good people. And the only way to get towards God is to be good, to have all your stuff tidy and neat, to appear like you've got it all together. And what they would do is they would put other people down so they would appear even better. Their only aim was to climb the social hierarchy. And so the Pharisees would walk around, and what they had done is they had created a social structure in that day and age. Social structure that says, the ones who appear like they've got it together are top, and then everyone else. They're just segregated into categories. Those people who have that reputation, those people who do that, those people who spend time with those kind of people, everything was categorized, and they claimed to be the top of the social hierarchy. And suddenly Jesus lands in, and it says that he's eating with these kind of people. He's spending time with these kind of people. He's laughing with these kind of people. He's having a great time and conversation with these kind of people, and they're like, this betrays our entire social structure that we're saying, but more so than that, is that you have the nerve to say that you are the son of God. This isn't going to fly right. And so they ask him, they confront him, and I love how Jesus responds to this because this is never how I responded. Like, can you imagine on Saturday morning when someone calls me a blonde bimbo and I'm like, so let me tell you a story. You're like, I'm going to be killed if I try to do it to someone who's trying to have a confrontation with me. But Jesus begins to tell a story. The first story he tells is about uh, a sheep. He says, suppose you have 99 and you lose one. First thing, all the incredible scholars who know a lot more than me about all these kind of things, they will confirm that indeed this shepherd is not Northern Irish. I'll tell you why. Because if Northern Irish man walked in that field, he'd be like, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 40, 90, good enough. That would be the Northern Irish man. You know the good enough mentality? It's like, uh, is there 100 there? Uh, give or take one or two. We're good. It's like, we can tell straight away that this guy is not Northern Irish. He pays attention to what he is counting. But more importantly, I think what we need to understand is that it's not necessarily who he is counting, but who he's counting that isn't there. He's counting who is missing rather than who is there. Now, I don't, I don't claim to be a sheep expert in any way, shape, or form. Never met one, never talked to one, don't know what they're like. So I'm, I'm not an expert in that, um, in that field. But I know a few things about sheep. I know that sheep are not the smartest of animals. I have a friend who's a farm, and he's known to find sheep in troughs of diesel like it's a caramel latte drinking their hearts away and it's diesel and they have no idea like that's it's not very smart guys all right and uh but also sheep are short-sighted okay so sheep generally most of their lives spend the time looking at at the ground looking at grass so they'll see green they'll walk they'll see green They'll walk, run out of space right here, they'll see green, and they'll continue to walk and walk and walk. See, they're short-sighted. They can't look beyond necessarily what they're seeing right in front of them. That might be why short-sightedness drives them to drinking diesel. But they're short-sighted. So it doesn't say that the sheep was stolen or mislaid. It just said that it got lost. In fact, I'm no doubt the sheep was probably looking at the green patch of land when he was completely lost, thinking, how on earth did I get here? Or maybe he didn't, maybe just like green and he kept going. But there's a good chance he was thinking, how on earth did I get to this situation? You see, it, the sheep never made choices to get to that point. It could be argued that he didn't make choices not to get to that point, but it's sheep, like they're not smart, so they don't make great choices. But the interesting thing is that the shepherd not only identifies displacement and the lostness of the sheep, but the shepherd highlights the value of restoration. You see... What we read in the sheep in the story, not the sheep, what we read in the story is that Jesus does this thing where he says, Wouldn't you 
Like, doesn't he, like, doesn't the shepherd go after the one and leave the 99 behind? And the social structure says, no. Like, it's all about how we are, how neat and tidy we are. Like, why would we risk everything to go after one sheep? That's not, that's not how we read scripture. And she's saying, well, well, wouldn't you? Like, don't you understand the whole overarching story of scripture? Like, it, for Jesus, it's completely logical for him to leave 99 and go after the one the one sheep got lost with the supervision of a shepherd. To leave the fin- even the financial safety of 99 and go after one makes no sense whatsoever. If they got lost with it, if one got lost with the shepherd, then I'm pretty sure a lot more than one's going to get lost without the supervision of a shepherd. And Jesus is persistent. He says, of course he does. And then there's a pattern. He finds his sheep, he puts it over his shoulders, he carries it home, and then something happens that just seems, again, wild. It says he throws a party for, for one sheep. Parties in that day were, uh, when you rejoiced, you threw a party, you ate food. It was all integrated into the culture of this Greco-Roman world. This is all integrate into the social economics and the social structures of how people engage with each other. And he throws a party that probably would have cost an incredible amount of money, far more than just the cost of one sheep. What is happening in this moment? See, the cultural confrontation, Jesus confronting the man-made labels and categories that have been, the Pharisees have placed over crowds and people groups. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I might want to reach cities, I might want to reach towns, I might want to reach places and spaces all over this world, but I will always count in once. I will always count in once. See, if you count in once, it's impossible for someone to be overlooked. If you count them once, it's possible for someone to walk in through the door and say, no one connected with me. He always counted in ones. He never counted in crowds or churches or cities. He counted in ones that he wanted to reach those 100%, but he identified with the one. The Pharisees could never grasp that. They focused on groups and labels, and Jesus was coming in and saying, well, actually, he counts in one. You see, what Jesus was saying in this moment is that Pharisees have built the structure and their interpretation was that you need to get everything in order to get to God. And what Jesus was saying, you've got the whole wrong way around. The overarching narrative of Scripture, everything that is inside this, how can you not? That's why he says things like, doesn't he? Like, it's obvious. It's that this whole book points towards a reckless pursuit of a God in heaven pursuing humanity to be fully restored in relationship with him. That is the overarching story in which he presents. And yet the Pharisees are completely dumbfounded by it. The next one is that, is that there's a coin that comes up. So in this story, we understand that God counts in ones. He wants to pursue the one and continue to go through that. That's how he counts. He wants to detach himself from humanity, putting labels and fixtures on groups of people. But I think in this story, and I need to be really honest, I have preached in these three stories probably a fair amount. And I always get the prodigal son, and that's like, I love it, you know? It resonates deeply within my story. I, I, I just, it's my favorite story in the Bible. But I've often used the story of the parable of the son as like a segue into it. And I, in my own devotion life at the moment, I'm doing a rhythm. I try to do it yearly, and sometimes I really feel epically at it, but I'm really trying to do it, where I try to read all four Gospels in a week. 
And so it works out like reading 14, 13 chapters a day, and you just skim read, like you, re you resist the temptation of going super in-depth, and you kind of skim read over it, and you get a, a really big overview of the life of Jesus. And so like the aim is to, is like to kind of grasp the familiarity of, with, with the life of Jesus. And so I've been doing that, and as I've been going through the Gospels and this story, this has continued to like stick in my mind as I've been preparing for this. But we, we have the setting where it goes from a field to a house. It goes from 100 to 10. And it goes from a shepherd to a woman. And I think here we start to understand the posture of restoration. And I think what God is communicating continuously through this is that what ultimately moves our heart is always going to move us. And what we value is always going to have behaviors. It's interesting because she has nine coins. Ten coins and she loses one, which leaves her with nine coins. One of those coins is suggested to be around one day's wage. It's not a huge amount, but it's still a significant amount, and she has 10. If I had 10 pounds, 10 point coins, 10 point, one point coin, 10, yeah, you get the picture. And I lost one, I, like, I would look for the one. I would probably, like, look around for it, like, try to figure out where it is, like, and if I didn't find it, I'd probably give up, and that would be fine. It says in the story that she goes through these precautions to find this. And if I'm honest, I've read the story every time where, like, 10 coins, drops one, gets a land, sweeps it up, picks it up, and we're good. That's kind of like, like, that's why I've always kind of like used this as like a segue into the prodigal son. It's like, drops 10 coins, finds one, throws a party, great, prodigal son, epic. That's kind of been my posture towards it. And I think something really interesting happens when you kind of dig into what was happening in this day and age, what was happening around the culture of even homes and what would be going on there. Homes and and well, suggested from who this woman was and probably where she was at, that she would have lived in a rather small house. That the windows and doors would have been like little slits of light coming through. They wouldn't have been huge, they wouldn't have been big. And more importantly is that the ground wasn't like, like it wasn't carpet or like laminate floor. It was large objects of rocks that would have been pushed against each other to form some kind of ground that was probably incredibly unlevel, but was enough to kind of walk around with. There would have been huge gaps and crooks and all that kind of stuff in it that, that the coin could have fallen down to it. So first off, I kind of run into a few issues with this passage that doesn't make sense for me. It says that she lights a lamp. To fuel that lamp would have cost oil. Oil is expensive and a precious commodity to that day and age, especially if she's willing to pursue one coin when she has ten. We can probably assume that oil is a, is a fairly precious commodity to her. And it says that she lights the lamp. Now, this lamp isn't like an iPhone torch. It probably gives off a few inches of light either side. So pretty much what that's going to do is it's going to reflect shadows in a way where, where you're going to see different faces of the rock. And then it says she gets a broom and she begins to sweep. And so if we want to get really real with this, she would have been on her hands and knees. She would write down. At this moment, I realize that the scholars would also suggest that she never wore skinny jeans. But she would have held the lamp as closely to the ground as she could, trying to get a little bit of light, and she would have swept. And she wasn't sweeping to try to find the coin. She was sweeping because she wanted to hear the sound of the coin hitting against the rock. That's what she was sweeping to find. See, that sound of the coin hitting against the rock is the sound of lostness. It's the sound of misplacement. It's the sound of something that isn't there. She would have gotten close and she would have listened closely for that slight little ding of that coin hitting against the rock. 
And that would have been her indication that she would have got close to it. Now, how long she would have done that, we, we don't know. But I would expect with the amount of light that was going on and probably what the floors were like, what I've read, that it probably would have been a significant amount of time. Probably would have cost her a significant amount of money to fuel the oil lamp to do that. It also probably would have hurt her, like her knees would have been damaged from running across the rocks to try to find it and get it. She would have went to every expense to get it. And it says that when she finally finds it, this is the bit where I don't understand, she calls her friends to rejoice, to celebrate. Celebrate, again, is directly linked to eating food. So she would have thrown a party. So she, so let's, let's recap, okay? So she loses, she's 10 coins and she loses one, okay? To fuel a lamp, it's going to cost a lot more than one coin in oil. Like, depending on how long she did it for, like, let's assume for the sake of matter, three or four coins. But more so than that is that she continues to do it. And I love this, it says, when she finds it. Not if she finds it, when she finds it. Amazing. But it says, when she finds it she then calls her friends to celebrate. Now, if she's calling friends to celebrate, then she's hosting the party. That means that she's going to pay for the food, she's going to pay for the drink, she's going to pay for everything that's going on, she's going to host the party, and she's going to throw it. And she's celebrating over what? One coin. One measly little coin. Why would she go to all that expense for one little coin? You see, value is not deemed by what we place on it, but how much we're willing to pay for it. What we actually see is that God wants to count in ones and he wants to reach us one at a time. But how do we do that? How does he do that? How does he near closely to us? He gets close. He lights a little lamp. And he listens. For the slightest of sounds. For the slightest of misplacement. Wherever he deems that there has to be restoration, that's what he's listening for. He's as close as he can be for as long as he needs to be, at no expense. He will risk it all in line to save one coin that we would all deem as totally worthless in comparison to what she's paid to get there. He counts in ones, he looks till he finds it, and he gets close, and he listens closely. I love the song, uh, we, we sang it a few times, the song Reckless Love. I've heard a few people be like, I don't like the word reckless love in that because I feel like it, might be like irresponsible love, you know, like the reckless love of God. I like the word reckless because I think no matter what the cost or the consequence, he is going to get to you, to the one. He is going to get there no matter what the cost or the consequence is, no matter what stands in his way, no matter how long it takes, his love is reckless to get towards humanity. So huge curveball. In the second story, it references... A woman as opposed to a shepherd or a man. A woman, why? Uh, this might seem like a bit of a stretch, but I think the principle behind this is hugely important. There's many times that uh, the bride uh, of Christ is referenced, that like, like loves his bride, which is a female connotation placed on that. And wh- where am I going with that? Well, if we are to begin to suggest that the woman actually, what she's symbolizing is the church, is the people, not building, but the actual people of God. Then what this is, is an invitation for us to go in the same manner and attitude as as we've been found. As we've been sought after, we are to go and to search. It is an invitation to join in with this master plan that God is wrapping around humanity. To go after what is displaced, to pay whatever it costs. But there's a little bit of of a catch. 
and Andy touched on this this morning, there's a phrase that goes around, no pain, no gain, all right? And I have a friend uh, that I met in Seattle, he used to say, you know what I really wish that phrase was? I was like, what? He's like, I really wish it was, no pain, no pain. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not. And uh, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow, okay? Well, not a full marathon, that's just a leg. And uh, before you think I'm some kind of athlete, which I am. But um, I'm just going to run one leg. And is it going to hurt? Yes. Is it going to cost me? Yes. Did I train a little bit for it? Not enough, but I did. And I'm going to run the marathon. And it's going to cost me. It's going to hurt. But there's going to be a gain on the other side of it. I'm, well, I actually don't know what the gain is. Well, I'll just, just tell you all around seven miles. But there's something I get at the end of it. And there's some things you only get at the end of it if you go through it, if it costs you a little bit, if there's a little bit of pain involved. There's things that happen in those moments that that we receive things that we can't otherwise get. I think part part of the issue that happens is when we go to begin to search after the one, when we count them once, when we receive the invitation that we understand this is how God has found us and this is how he longs us to search and go after, that we realize that probably somewhere along the way this is going to be painful. This is maybe going to cost us. This is maybe going to be difficult. It might be financial cost. It might be our time. It might be the when of when eventually there's going to be breakthrough in that situation. We may actually have to come to the reality of allowing ourselves to walk into someone else's mess and to walk towards it, which can be difficult. If you're anything like me, I think when, when I talk to people, I, can, I think I can uh, go with people as long as I, I'm just going to be really honest, as long as I can kind of get some kind of grasp that their pain is legitimate. And so, like, something's happened to them that has caused them to be in a great deal of pain or hurt or the consequences that, or the situation that they're, the circumstances that they're in is not a result of their direct choices and consequences. But I think whenever I get around people, I'm like, well, actually, you chose that. And so that's, therefore, where you, where you are. And I'm not trying to obligate the idea of consequences. I think consequences are a really important thing. You understand that the choices we make are the consequences that we leave with. But there's something amazing that happens in Scripture, and, and I'm, I'm coming into land here, I think, um, if the band want to jump up. Um, but the thing with, with consequences in that is that sometimes we can draw lines in the sand when we decide that we want to go and to search after, when we want to go and to lean in, we want to decide that we're willing to pay some kind of cost to reach someone or to go somewhere. And there's a story in the Bible, and this is a bit of a, a, bit of a tangent, but I think it's really important, um, where there's a woman who is caught in adultery. We can assume that she actually um, wasn't caught in adultery. It was fixed, and it was orchestrated to make her look like she was caught in adultery. And she's surrounded by all these Pharisees. And the law says that if you're caught in adultery, that you're to be stoned and killed. And so all these Pharisees gather around this woman, and they have stones in, her, in their hands. And they have this, this is another one of these standoff moments between Jesus and the Pharisees, where he's like, the law says, this is what they said to Jesus, the law says, which you claim to be an expert in, that this woman is caught in adultery, therefore she should be stoned and killed. What do you say, Jesus? And so Jesus says, this amazing one line, he says, well, whoever has not sinned can cast the first stone. And this woman in the setting is probably on the ground and shaking, utterly terrified for her life, realizing that something is about to go down, that is going to cost her her life and that she hasn't even done. The difference in that moment when Jesus makes that statement is that the Pharisees can understand why she was wrong and they can understand why she's got to that place even if she didn't. They can understand the rigmarole of the, of the law and how she's caught red-handed but what they fail to see is her pain. 
and the direct invitation is that Jesus sees exactly her pain. That's what he sees. There's a passage in Hebrews that talks about Jesus fixing our eyes and Jesus, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. It means what he starts, he's faithful to finish. That's what happens. There's another story in the Bible where Jesus talks about his friend Lazarus who dies. And I'm going to be a tangent, but I'm coming to the land. And his friend Lazarus is dead. And the reason why he's died is that Mary and Martha have contacted Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick, he's going to die. Get here as fast as you can. And Jesus ends up, he's, he's late. He's a few days late. He doesn't make it. Lazarus is dead. Now, Jesus has just went from place to place. Raising the dead is like level one for him. Like, it is like, at this point, he's like an expert. Like, he has mastered this thing of raising people to life. And Mary and Martha has firsthand experienced that. They've firsthand seen him do what he can do. They know who he is. They've understood the things that he can do, the power he possesses, the ability he possesses, and who, like he is the son of God. They grasp it. They get their head around it. And Jesus walks in the scene, and Mary and Martha are in tears. And the two, these two words happen. It says, Jesus wept. Two words. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, when I read that, I'm like, at, at this moment in time, I'm like, why would Jesus weep? Like if he is the son of God and he has everything inside his power and ability to turn the situation from a setback to a setup, how to set, then what's the big deal? And the most important thing in this moment is that even though Jesus knows what is going to happen, even though he knows what is just around the corner, he is present with the pain that is happening in that moment. He is present with the hurt that's happening in that moment. Even though he knows he's about to turn around, he is present with that pain. He sees it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. He completely sees it. And so I want to switch this no pain, no gain thing. Uh, and the next slide I come up. No pain, no gain. K-N-O-W. K-N-O-W. I think it's probably fair to say that pain is a fairly natural result of life. We experience it all the time. And part of actually going after what is lost, part of going after seeking restoration in every place. It, it can be hard. We've, we've discussed that. It can be difficult. It can be, have a cost attached to it. It can even have pain attached to it. But there's a promise inside Scripture that there's always gain, not just for the individual, but in fact for far more, for the community around them, for the city around them, for everyone that they walk into, that pain and purpose are directly connected, that what you're going through that is causing you pain, something in there is connected to a greater purpose that is beyond you and greater than you. And there's a rhythm in scripture, there's a rhythm connected to these, these three stories, I didn't touch on the third one, but something gets lost, we identify that it's valuable, he risks it all, he goes after it, he finds it no matter how long it takes to find it, and then they celebrate. There's, there's a pattern to that, I think these patterns are connected to a promise, that if we're willing to go and embrace pain, that on the other side of that, we're going to embrace gain. We're going to know what it means to experience life in all its fullness. We're going to experience the goodness that God has on the other side of it. We're going to experience great purpose on the other side of that. We're not, like, we're, we're, what sort of community do we want to be? What sort of community do I imagine us being around? I, like, for me, following Jesus was never an estimation of what's going to be easy. It might be difficult or hard sometimes. That doesn't mean it's bad. That often means it's worth it. But gathering around tables celebrating and talking and eating food and talking about what he's done even crying sometimes but 
ultimately reflecting on his goodness and his promises and that he's been faithful to the end. That's the kind of stuff I want to be around. That's the sort of stuff I want to engage with. And so tonight, we're going we're gonna to sing a song and we're going to pray for some of you guys as well. But um, tonight, I want I, I, to... Like this also is like, this is not my comfort zone, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of lean into it because I feel that it's important. But before we sing... I feel that there's probably individuals in this room tonight where maybe the, the penny's dropped, no, no pun intended, where we understand this whole thing is not about us trying to get our lives in order and in the shape to get to God, but actually there is a phenomenal pursuit of where God is chasing after us at all costs. And we've really been caught up trying to get everything in order and everything tidied up. And then we have that moment where we're like, wow, all along it was you pursuing me and you're closer than I ever realized and you're listening more intently than I ever realized in my darkest moments and in my hurt and in my pain you've been there on your knees with a lantern and a brush listening for those little whispers listening for those little murmurs closer than you could ever realize